This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Monday, February 6th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A recent poll by the Washington Post showed that Americans were unexcited about a potential Donald Trump versus Joe Biden rematch for the 2024 election. Well, sure, I thought. There are two variables there. One may be unexcited for Trump v. Biden in the same way that one is unexcited for a warm brownie a la mode liberally garnished with dog feces. You can't really blame the brownie or Biden v. Trump as a concept might be unappealing in the way that a wicker basket full of puppies and one lone hand grenade would not be considered an appropriate housewarming gift. But I was surprised at who represented excitement and who represented excrement in this particular pairing. According to the Post, 36% of those polled say they would be enthusiastic or satisfied but not enthusiastic if Biden were reelected, while 40 Three say the same about Trump. Whoa, Trump's more popular. Mm-hmm. But he's also more unpopular. 36% say they'd be angry if Trump wins, while 30% say that about a Biden victory. So more anger towards Trump, but pretty similar levels towards Biden. I guess that just justifies the headline, few Americans are excited about a Biden-Trump rematch. When you think about it, though, the two men do have their similarities. They each have been one-term presidents. They'd each be octogenarians by the end of a second term. They each have two sons, at least one of whom can't be trusted with important matters. They each have special prosecutors looking into the handling of classified documents. Speaking on the Hugh Hewitt show last week, one of the two men opined on his particular special prosecutor. I have a guy as a special prosecutor who's got, who's just hates Trump. His wife hates Trump. His sister-in-law, I believe, hates Trump. Uh, he's a Weissman guy. He's a Comey guy. He's a uh, Obama guy. And it's a disgrace what he does to people. A disgrace that he should be ashamed of himself, Jack Smith. So I, don't, you... I have no idea what his name was. Perhaps he changed it. We can report he did not change it. Well, I got to hand it to Trump. That was a wild accusation. And it really was unexpected. So it was exciting. And that, of course, is a terribly important quality in a president. The excitement of hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths. The thrill a minute roller coaster of nuclear negotiations with North Korea. The nonstop adrenaline gusher of feuds, firings, and unfilled ambassador posts. Wee! That's what we want, right? On ABC's This Week This Week, Chris Christie put his finger on it. In the end, Joe Biden is not an exciting candidate. He's old. He's boring. Boo! Low unemployment. Steady progress against the Russians. Boring. Christie did go on to opine that even the Delaware dullard would beat Donald Trump in an election. To which Trump lashed out on Truth Social, posting, Sloppy Chris Christie, the failed former governor of New Jersey. 
Christie then tweeted back that he was just the latest of Trump's tantrums. And yet, for all the norepinephrine now dousing each man's nervous system, I am not sensing what you would call anything approaching the presidential at play. So maybe we were wrong to interpret few Americans are excited about a Trump-Biden rematch as bad news. Maybe it's more like lots of Americans would rather be less excited. On the show today, dirigible diplomacy has Republican recriminations ballooning. But first, Derek Thompson's a staff writer for The Atlantic, where he writes the Work in Progress newsletter, and he's host of the Plain English podcast. Derek's been writing for a while about where the rubber of technology meets the road of society, whether it's our response to COVID or the possibilities of chat GPT. Derek Thompson, up next. Derek Thompson is a writer for The Atlantic and the host of the Plain English podcast, a great podcast, so good that, for instance, the host of someone who's been doing a podcast for 10 years listens to it and says, ooh, this is inspiring. Derek writes a lot about technology, its implementation, the conception thereof, and some of his recent articles in The Atlantic took this head-on. He wrote, Why the Age of American Progress Ended, Invention Alone Can't Change the World, What Matters is What Happens Next. This was also titled, The Eureka Theory of History is Wrong. I would like to talk to him now about the precipice that we're standing upon and what we think and how to think about what I think are massive technological breakthroughs that maybe didn't touch all of our lives as much as they could have or should have. Derek, welcome. It is great to be here. Thank you. It's a longtime listener. It's a real honor to be here. And you're right. Progress right now is a lot more questions than answers, but hopefully we can provide a few of the latter uh, for some listeners. Yeah, so what sparked the questions. Uh, As I just follow your writing on it, and you've been writing on this general theme for a long time, I take it that you look back at the pandemic and said, wow, what a contradiction. The science was amazing, and Operation Warp Speed was that, and then we stupid humans got in the way. But was that actually the spark? I don't know what the spark is. It's sometimes difficult to figure out exactly why I get interested in certain things. But I think that to a certain extent, the broad concept of progress served as a really nice vessel to pull together a lot of things I was interested in. I am interested in science and technology, but I'm not just interested in breakthroughs that have no impact on people's lives. I'm interested in the way that life actually changes. And so progress seemed like a really nice and capacious word or vessel to hold all of these things that I was fascinated in. When it comes to the pandemic itself, there's no way to avoid the fundamental fact that the story of the pandemic for the first two years was in many ways a story of our not doing enough. You have Fauci in March 2020 saying, don't wear masks because there aren't enough to go around. And then after the vaccines, they were we were told not to get boosters because there weren't enough to go around. And I remember my, you know, the, the my, my head really hit the ceiling when I was you know lining up, queuing up in a, a cold January for some free COVID tests. And we were queuing up because there weren't enough people or COVID tests to go around. And I was just thinking to myself, wow, you know, these things aren't that difficult to make. We know exactly how to make them. The problem isn't in the invention, it's in the deployment, it's in the implementation. And I'd really become obsessed with the difference between invention and implementation in the story of progress. And that has motivated a lot of my work in the last few years. But then when there were enough vaccines to go around, they didn't go around because would you say it was the same failings that 
suppress the number of of tests as suppress the um, uptake of vaccines, people just choosing not to take them? I would say when it comes to progress, it's all human, right? It's people who come up with the science of mRNA science. It's people who come up with the vaccines themselves. It's people who write the rules about how to administer the vaccines that are manufactured. And it's people who determine how the vaccines are manufactured. So it's all human challenges and all human solutions. But I am absolutely interested in the fact that very often it is so, so difficult for people to figure out how do we make that which we invent? How do we make enough of that which we invent. And this obviously is a story that goes way beyond the vaccines themselves. Like an American invented the elevator and we don't build enough apartment buildings in the US that use elevator technology. Americans invented the solar cell and we don't build nearly enough solar energy. Americans built nuclear reactors, the first nuclear reactors. We don't build enough of those today. Americans built the first semiconductor chip And 80% of advanced semiconductor manufacturing happens in like Taiwan and Eastern Asia rather than the US. So a major theme to me of American technology and yes, of progress is that we are like the R&D factory of the world that doesn't understand how to build enough of what we invent. And of course, this was a problem that we saw throughout the pandemic. And if you look into things like the housing crisis, it's, it's very much there as well. I think that there are at least two different kinds of human failings. Uh, that you're describing or that you're at least hinting at. And one is everyone, when it comes to rapid tests, uh, almost everyone, um, there are some extreme uh, vaccine deniers who probably think that it's bad, but almost everyone would say, why can't someone somewhere along the way have done something better such that we get all of these tests. But when it comes to, say, vaccines, there are a whole bunch of people who say, I don't want the vaccine and the the... Mm pushing up against progress is just trying to convince people that this thing that is progress really is. I think maybe solar panels are a little like that. I don't know if everyone, maybe it's changing, but there was a lot of suspicion about them in general. And now maybe uh, even hardcore uh, climate denialists will say, yeah, I'll take a solar panel. So is, is that, how important is that distinction in trying to analyze this problem? Yeah, you've landed on a distinction that is absolutely core to the way that I think about progress. Uh, One answer to your question is that I think about most stories of human progress as being a kind of four-legged stool. And the four legs are science, technology, politics, and culture. So this story maps on beautifully to the COVID vaccines. You needed the science of synthetic mRNA from people like Caitlin Carrico in order to understand how do we actually get this stuff into our bodies. You needed technology. Technology, I would say, is how we turn science into a product, right? You needed Moderna and uh, BioNTech to actually invent vaccines themselves. Okay, now you've got science and tech. You still need policy. How are we going to build this stuff? We've never built, uh, you know, a, a billions of vaccines in, in a single year. We needed Operation Warp Speed and similar policies around the world to build this stuff and then to deploy it fairly and quickly to people so that they could just go to their local CVS and just get a shot in their deltoid. But then finally, and I think it's very savvy of you to point this out, we need culture. People need to demand new things in order for new things to actually be implemented. Sometimes you see this culture problem happen in places like housing, where no one wants any new houses in their neighborhood. We call this nimbyism, not in my backyard. Sometimes we have a kind of cultural nimbyism or a a cultural fear of the new, a kind of neophobia, fear of the new. I think in many ways, that's something that happened with the COVID vaccines. People said synthetic mRNA 
is not real. It's not natural. We shouldn't put this in our bodies. It's clearly going to make us infertile or it'll, you know, kill us five years from now or something. It'll mess with our gene code or whatever some people were saying. They came up with a bunch of, I think, rationalizations to backfill their cultural disinclination to want something that was new. And you need all four of these legs to stand up the stool. Because for an individual who rejects the vaccine, it's as if none of these previous things happened at all. For that individual who rejects the vaccine, it's as if the science never happened, as if the invention of the vaccines never happened, and as if Operation Warp Speed itself never happened. So if you don't solve the culture problem, you do not get progress. So let's take cancer where it doesn't have these debates. Is it good to save cancer? Is it good to cure cancer? 99 point something percent of people think it is. Um, And we are making great strides in curing cancer. And as I noted on the show a couple weeks ago, we are generally, even though 300,000 of us would be dead who aren't based on the current trends, we're not really recognizing that. I don't know if we're doing enough to, um, I don't know if we're doing enough to promote uh, the cancer cures that we have out there. Mostly a lot of them are cultural cures, like the cessation of uh, smoking Mm -hmm. and uh, uptake of the HPV vaccine. But the reason I raise it is it's a little different from the uh, COVID story. There isn't this cultural opposition to embracing it, but there's still huge huge downsides to what we should be calling progress. What I'm putting my finger on is a failure to recognize it, but maybe because you've written about this too, there are other there are some other failures embedded within the actual great success of our progress against cancer. I think cancer is a really interesting way to look at my four-legged stool theory of progress, because I think that there are deficits in every single quadrant. We have science deficits, number one, because there are certain cancers, like say pancreatic cancer, we just don't know what to do with it when people are diagnosed with late-stage pancreatic cancer. Um, My mom died of pancreatic cancer. I'm intimately familiar with this. It's a death sentence. When you are diagnosed with late-stage pancreatic, it's a a death sentence um, in in 90% of cases. In technology... But that's the worst. That that is the worst of all the cancers, and maybe there's always going to be a worst. And some some other cancers, which were once as deadly, have now fallen to, you know, 20% cure rates. That's true. But when you look at why those cancer mortality rates are declining, typically it's not just because we have these incredible breakthroughs in curing late-stage cancers. It's also because we have breakthroughs in technology for screening. So increases in screening for prostate cancers are overwhelmingly responsible for the decline in prostate cancer mortality in the last 20, 30 years. That's technology, right? New screening technologies. Then you've got politics. Right now, one of the problems with cancer prevention medication taking a pill that keeps you from getting lung cancer rather than treating it after you're diagnosed. One of the problems with cancer prevention medication is that the FDA and the NIH have certain rules for exactly how you can test for this stuff. If I take a pill right now to keep me from getting lung cancer at 70, all right, I'm 36 years old. I have to wait 34 years 
to know whether or not this pill is working, that doesn't work. You need something called short-term proxies. And we have short-term proxies for things like um, heart medication. We can sort of say, does this lower your blood pressure? And we'll assume that's going to prevent you from getting heart disease later. We have these kind of short-term proxies for heart medication. We don't have them um, for uh, pre uh, cancer prevention medication. That is a political change we can make to the way that the FDA approves certain clinical trials. And then finally, there's culture. You said earlier that one of the big reasons why lung cancer increased throughout the 20th century and now has declined in the last 20, 30 years is because of the history of smoking. So the hit, smoking hit an all-time high in terms of cigarettes per person in 1963, 4,500 cigarettes per person in America. That is half a pack a day. Now that's declined by about 70, 80% in the last, I guess, 60 years, exactly. The reason that we've had this huge decline in lung cancer um, mortality in the last 60 years has mostly has to do with the fact that culture changed. The culture of smoking changed. So again, with cancer, you need all four quadrants. Yes, we need better science. Yes, we need better technology. My dog is approving of my four quadrant theory. <laughs> yes, we need better politics, but we also need better culture to, to implement the understandings we have. Yes. So that's excellent journalism. It's a good critique of where we stand on a, an important issue. I hadn't thought or known about a lot of that yet. Big picture, I look at the cancer question. I say, what this tells me is that the technology, the science is mostly excellent. It kind of blows me away. Of course, maybe that's because of the four quadrants. The one I'm definitely not on is scientist. I'm part of the culture. I cover politics, etc. Um, so it seems to me like a lot of other things in our society where the technology, and I think you write about this in the Eureka theory, meaning that once the technology is invented, our cures, the actual uh, lived experience of the cures start to come. The Eureka is there to a large extent. It's everything else. And so I think about the implications of this. Maybe we need to think about convincing human beings, maybe the public health aspect of the public health field see, needs to think more about breakthroughs when it comes to the public part of things than when it comes to the health part of things. Or maybe that's impossible. Maybe a cancer cell is eminently more fixable than the complexity of culture and human interaction or American politics. The way that I think about it, there's invention, there's implementation, and it's all human, so it's all complicated. It's really, really, really hard to cure late-stage cancer, to understand the science of how to stop really rapid abnormal cell growth. We have spent hundreds of billions of dollars to try to cure all sorts of late-stage cancers, and we know how hard it is to do so with the technology that is on the shelves right now. It's also really difficult to get people to change their habits, right? We know, we, we, have, we have lots of science of, you know, what kind of diets are likely to help certain people um, keep off weight, um, uh, avoid obesity, and avoid the kind of cancers that are made more likely among people who are obese. But we also know that diet and exercise is really, really hard to succeed with over time for many, many people. Right. There's all sorts of NIH interventions. And you know, maybe you've done a lot of episodes um, on this. I just had, did a few episodes on plain English about the science of obesity in America. The NIH has done all sorts of studies where you get the best behavioral scientists in the world and they bring on some brilliant, motivated people that are overweight. And they say, we're going to give these brilliant, motivated people the best diet and exercise intervention we can possibly think of. 
And it's still hard for them to keep off weight after several years because the body's metabolism changes in response to diet and exercise. It becomes more efficient. And so they have to keep eating less and less and less. And that's really hard to do when you've got a messy, complicated life. So I, I think it's just complicated across the board. I, I'm, I'm not trying to sugarcoat any of this and make it seem easy. I do think there might be some um, examples of low-hanging fruit when it comes to the, the fight against cancer. But I think it's worth observing, worth being honest about the fact that all of this is going to be hard. And that's why we need really all hands on deck to try to solve a problem like this. To ask the next question, let's just establish this. Would you say the mRNA vaccine, the technology that um, allowed us to uh, give vaccines for COVID was amazing, blew your mind? Yeah. Impressive. Right. So I think that there are a lot of inventions that actually are in that bucket, but they're treated, well, there's the knee-jerk skepticism that you could always get commissioned to write an article somewhere. This amazing technology is, is it really progress or, but let's concentrate on the downsides, which is important to concentrate on the downsides. But there is a skepticism about the amazing changes in the world all around us that I think is sometimes uh, an enemy of progress. I mean, sometimes you could say, well, you want ethicists to consider what are the, what are the implications of, say, having this supercomputer that you carry in your pocket all the time. But on the other hand, it's freaking amazing and not recognizing that and not utilize or allowing just, you know, the people who can manipulate that amazing technology to be the ones who recognize it as amazing versus the ones, if the countervailing forces are the people who are skeptical of the technology as it is, that's not great societally. Um, I, I talked about the cell phone and how it's going to change us. I'm thinking about AI and what we're seeing with chat GPT. I think right now we would be best to say that this is absolutely amazing and not to downplay or poo-poo the potential of it, but to really try to get our heads and minds around it as an amazing technology, rather than just have the people who own the technology be the only ones to recognize that and then define how that technology is going to be implemented. I think ChatGPT is utterly fascinating, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what exactly it is and what it's exactly it's going to become. I mean, some people say it's like a calculator for writing. It's like this new incredible tool for writing we've never seen before. Other people say it essentially allows us to uh, synthesize the work of like, you know, a hundred interns for certain people in white collar businesses. I think its potential is just so interesting and bizarre to think through because it's kind of like seeing a tadpole and or a tadpole-like looking embryo and trying to predict, is this thing going to be a frog or a human or an elephant? You simply do not know. It could become any of them. It could become all of them. Right, right, I think right. that ChatGBT is absolutely fascinating. I love playing with it. I actually don't even think it's the most interesting AI, sort of generative AI that I've seen in the last few years, that would be this technology called AlphaFold. AlphaFold is a technology from DeepMind, a company based in London that's owned by Alphabet, the parent company of Google. And AlphaFold essentially allows scientists to anticipate the, um, the design and the shape of just about any protein. So if we could design synthetic proteins, it opens up all of science. I mean, that's maybe one of the most exciting things that, I, that, that, that exists in, in, in the world to me, and I don't even know how it's going to change science. 
I'm glad you're advocating for uh, best case scenarios and uh, thinking about these things more rigorously. But let's talk about the real world. Is there any society, any country to model us on? Do we have to be the leader in how to best uh, to best tend to our stool? Or can we look to, I don't know, Singapore or the Nordic nations or other countries that might not be as technologically inventive as us, but have some of the other legs of the stool more you know, sharply honed? It's a great question. You know, in certain things, I could definitely say if you said, you know, who does a great job of building urban housing, I could say, look at Tokyo. If you say, like, you know, who does a great job of having, like, a social security policy, I might say, like, you know, look at Norway. But when it comes to something like AI, when it comes to something like dealing with a novel technology, I think it's really, really hard to know what to do just by looking at other countries because we are the bleeding edge. We are the bleeding edge. China, of course, is doing its best to try to claim that bleeding edge. But, you know, historically, I think um, uh, someone who was it, Uh, the economist Vaclav Smil put it this way, which I thought was interesting. So the Soviet Union is great at inventing stuff, but bad at implementing it. That's why they have all these smart scientists who, you know, had this exodus after the Soviet Union collapsed. But if you look at the consumer economy in Russia, they're actually like quite poor for a big country. China is not very good at inventing stuff, but they're really good at implementing stuff. So not a lot of Nobel Prize winners necessarily living in. China. But when it comes to building that which has already been invented, like houses and dams, China is quite good at that. I don't know that anyone quite has fully mastered the, the perfect blending of invention and implementation. That is, that is a, a, a stage that the U.S. Uh, can, can occupy if we, if we want to. Um, but we need to solve this problem for ourselves. We are writing history as it's happening. And um, this seems to be one question where we can't just look at Singapore and say, aha, that's what we need to do. Derek Thompson is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he writes the Work in Progress newsletter. He is also the host of the Plain English podcast, which is a ringer podcast, which is nice, populous, smart, getting out to the people. Derek, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Last week, a balloon entered U.S. airspace. This was a slow floating affront to national prestige, according to Republican critics of President Biden. Because to the untrained eye, it was a balloon, but to those in the know, it was a lighter-than-air insult to presidential resolve. On ABC's This Week This Week, Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida, said the Chinese knew it would be spotted. That was the whole point. This is deliberate. They did this on purpose. They understood that it was going to be spotted. They knew the U.S. government would have to reveal it to people. We're going to see it over the sky. And the message they were trying to send is uh, what they believe internally. And that is that the United States is a once great superpower that's hollowed out, that's in decline. But I meet the press, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, totally agreed with Rubio. It was a lighter than air humiliation. But to get to the obvious conclusion that Biden is weak and the U.S. is a laughing stock, Rep. Turner used precisely the opposite reasoning as Rubio, who, remember, argued that the Chinese were planning on being caught. But Turner said this. I mean, the president allowed this to go across our most sensitive sites and wasn't even going to tell the American public. If you hadn't broken this story, mm-hmm. uh, the American public would not have even known. Look, look, we can all agree at least that the president was weak, weak. We have the ability to do this, and America can't do anything about it. If they're not going to be able to stop a balloon from flying over U.S. airspace, how is America going to come to your aid if we invade Taiwan or take land from India or take islands from the Philippines and Japan? The overall point about Biden weakness is a bit 
weakened by the fact that we didn't do nothing about it. We did something, a major something. We attacked it with a military jet, shot it down. Sure, we didn't do it over land, so it wouldn't hurt anyone. I guess being not weak means potentially hurting the citizenry. But you know, what patriotic American wouldn't willingly take one for the team? One, meaning balloon remnants crashing through their roof. In fact, I would actually caution Taiwan not to look at our aggressive military response against the balloon as any indication that they'll get the same response to, say, a Chinese MiG, which, because it's Chinese, wouldn't be a MiG, but a Shenyang, but you get the point. It's 180 degrees opposite what Rubio was arguing. Rubio says our lack of strong counter-balloon operations is a troubling indication to Taiwan and other allies that we won't aggressively fight off Chinese fighters. But in truth... Our bellicosity against an unnamed balloon is a misleading indication that we might be similarly bellicose against actual manned aircraft. Another point that Rubio made was this assertion. Listen, if we were to fly anything over China, they're going to shoot it down. They're going to shoot it down and and they're going to hold up and they're going to take pictures of it and they're going to go bonkers about it. Earlier in the interview, in fact, on Both of the interviews that he did on the Sunday shows, State of the Union and this week, Rubio made the point that the Chinese were clever because they launched the balloon, but also clever because the balloon was destroyed and that allowed them to act outrage. He was putting forward the notion that by simply conceiving of this gambit of the surveillance balloon, they had won this round. But then, when you hear the counterfactual about the U.S. trying the same thing, well, of course, that would be an embarrassing disaster for the United States. So if they do it, they're smart. If we do it, or if weak Joe Biden does it, it's doomed. Okay, whatever gambits the Chinese attempt automatically humiliate us, if we attempt the exact same thing, we'll be automatically humiliated. Now, I consider Marco Rubio to be a more thoughtful Republican, but I think the realities of domestic politics make it too tempting to assail a rival party's president, no matter his difficult decision. When it comes to senators and the ability to criticize a president, to quote a statesman, they're going to go bonkers about it, or feral, becoming something of a balloon animal. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. I just want to take a moment, and I don't normally do this, to talk about something personal. Really not personal to me. Personal to a family that my wife and I, our whole whole family, is hosting for the next month. We have Svetlana, Sergei, their children, Dima, who's 12, Yasha, who's... A two-year-old with lots of energy, they're staying with us. They fled Ukraine, and hosting a family of Ukrainian refugees is not just, hey, here's a house, here we have some extra room in a basement apartment. It's working with them to get services, to navigate bureaucracy, to do everything from orient them about mass transit, to get them in touch with the school system. And they do, they used up half their rent in a very unfortunate situation, staying in a really substandard apartment when they first got here. They'll be with us for another month and a half. So like I said, I don't normally do this, but if you go to Pescami, P-E-S-C-A-M-I on Twitter or my Facebook page, or, and I think I'll have this on the Mike Pesca website, we have a GoFundMe for 
this family, this lovely family that we're hosting that absolutely needs help. And if you can, if you would care to, if you could donate, I thank you. And so does Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dupru, and thanks for listening.